The reading today can be found in John 3, 1 through 15. If you're using our community Bibles, that's on page 577. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Special welcome to our new members uh, who joined us this morning officially. Um, just so excited for you guys. Way to take that step. If you aren't a member here and you're interested in uh, knowing more about the membership process or more about our church, I invite you to come and find one of the pastors afterwards, and we'd love to tell you a little bit more about that. If you would, please join me in prayer over the message today. God, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for sending your son to earn us forgiveness for our sins in good standing before you. Thank you that you loved us before we could love you back, that you have chosen us, that you have done this great work for us. Lord, help us through the power of your spirit to be prepared to hear from your word this morning. Uh, Lord, that we might be changed, that our lives would not be the same, but look more and more like your son. We lift these things to you in his name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we hit a really important milestone in the development of the Kansas City Metro. I'm serious. When, when the history of Kansas City is written, we're going to look back at that day as the day that changed it all for us, and that is the day that Ikea opened. <laughs> right? I mean, for weeks upon terrible weeks, some of us had to drive right past on I-35 as the building was raising, wondering when, oh when, will we be able to go to this promised land? On the first Saturday that Ikea was open, Courtney and I actually went, which was a huge mistake. We parked just outside of St. Louis and walked for days and days and days. <laughs> 
No, it wasn't actually that bad, but it was packed. And one of the really interesting things about the way IKEA does their business is that when you buy furniture from them, it's actually not yet assembled, right? So when you choose your piece of furniture or kitchen set or whatever it is, you go down to the warehouse area, you get a box that has all the pieces in it, and you take it home and you put it together, which for the courageous is a really cool opportunity to create something with your hands. For the more realistic, it's a really cool opportunity to pay someone else to put it together for you. (laughs) Because whether or not you like this sort of thing, the worst moment is when you put something together, you get it all done, and you look in the box, and you see that screw that you missed. And you start to ask yourself the question, just how important is this screw to the integrity of the furniture, right? I mean, do I really need to start all over, take it all the way apart? And that's frustrating when it's a piece of furniture. But what about when it's your life? What about that moment you come to where you look back and realize that you've missed something way back in the beginning? And you ask yourself the question, do I really need to start over? We're in the middle of a series called Jesus Listens, sharing Jesus the way Jesus did. And we're journeying together through the Gospel of John, looking at these different interactions Jesus had with people from all walks of life. And we're seeing that every single time Jesus first listens, he takes the time to really hear them. But then also every single time, he shows himself to be the answer to their questions, to their fears, to their doubts. And today, we're going to see that Jesus listens to the skeptic. No, not the skeptic. That was week one. Jesus listens to the religious. (laughs) I should read my manuscript more carefully. Jesus listens to the religious. And as we prepare to dive into this story, I want to offer this statement. The most dangerous obstacle to true faith in Jesus is religion. The most dangerous obstacle to true faith in Jesus is religion. Of all the different obstacles we're looking at through the course of this series, it's actually religion that is the most dangerous obstacle. And here's why. Because religion blinds us to our need for a Savior. Religion blinds us to our need for a Savior. And just so we're on the same page about this, I want to offer a a kind of a working definition for religion. This isn't the definition. Um, But as I say the word religion throughout the course of this message, this is the definition that we're thinking about. Religion is doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. Religion is doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. We might call it moralism. We might call it legalism. So today we're going to see through Jesus' interaction with a man who has done all the right things for all the wrong reasons, just how dangerous religion can be. So, if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. To John chapter 3. And as you heard read this morning, John is recounting for us a story. uh, A story in which there's a conversation Jesus has with this man called Nicodemus. And to understand, just to set us up for this conversation, John does what every good storyteller does. He starts us off with a little bit of background on who Nicodemus is. He uses two words that for people in John's time would set up all sorts of expectations for how this conversation is going to go. 
So the first word is a Pharisee. This is a man of the Pharisees. When we hear the word Pharisee, we usually don't have real charitable thoughts. If you say to someone, you're being a real Pharisee about this, that's usually not a compliment, right? But in this time, really the exact opposite is true. A Pharisee is a person who has devoted their life to studying God's word and then teaching it to God's people. So in other words, Nicodemus is really a pastor in Israel. But he didn't have all the really cool resources that we have nowadays to to learn the Bible, to read the Bible, to study the Bible. He didn't have an app on his iPhone or any cool commentaries on his computer. He didn't get an email or text that told him what the day's reading was. In fact, it's likely that Nicodemus didn't even own a copy of the Bible at all. So in order for him to know the Bible well enough to teach it, what he had to do was memorize it. He and his fellow Pharisees would gather together at the temple where they would have copies of all the scrolls of the different texts, and they would together work on memorizing the scripture, so much so that by the time Nicodemus has this conversation with Jesus, he probably has most of what we call the Old Testament memorized. Although at that point there was no New Testament, so it was just the Testament, or the the Hebrew Bible is what they would have called it, right? He's got almost all of that memorized. But he's not just a pastor. He's not just a Pharisee. He's also a ruler of the Jews. This means that Nicodemus was a member of a council called the Sanhedrin. You may have heard that word before, the Sanhedrin. This is like a group of guys who are basically like a supreme court. They interpret the law as it's laid out in Scripture. They give out the punishments for people who break the law that's laid out in Scripture. He's a member of this ruling council. In short, this guy is a really, really well-known follower of God. Think about, if you're into this sort of thing, think about that pastor you like to listen to in podcasts or, or maybe on the radio. Uh, the author that you like to read anytime they write a book or release a blog or anything like that. That is Nicodemus. He is the model follower of God. I mean, there's no one here who has read as much or memorized as much of the Bible as Nicodemus did. There's no one here who's prayed as much or as often as Nicodemus did, given as much or as often as Nicodemus did. On the outside, this guy is the model Christian. So he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night for this private conversation, and he says exactly what a person like him, what a religious person says to Jesus. He says, I know who you are. In verse 2, he says this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And right off the bat, before Jesus even enters the conversation, we begin to see what's so dangerous about religion, which is that Nicodemus is totally blinded to who Jesus is. Think about it. This guy has made a living studying, interpreting, teaching God's word to God's people, which at this time means a primary focus of what he's studying and teaching is the expectancy for the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. This is his focus. This is what he teaches, what he prays about, what he thinks about. And here, that one, that Messiah is standing right in front of him, and he misses it. He misses it because he can't see it. He's so obsessed with his own pedigree, with all the good that he's done, that he feels that things are good with him and God. 
the kind of person that he needs to be the Messiah is not really anything personal. It's someone who can come and free him and his country from their present circumstance, from the oppression of Rome. He doesn't feel that he has a need much more deep, much more personal, and much more fundamental than that. Well, Jesus likes to tell stories. And we call them parables to illustrate a point he's making. And you may remember this. There's a story he tells at a different time about a Pharisee, just like Nicodemus. This Pharisee goes into the temple court, and he prays loudly as possibly as he can. And he prays this. He prays, God, I thank you that I am not like that, these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So confident is this Pharisee in his own works that his prayers are actually thanking God, not for what God has done for him, but for what he has done for God. This is Nicodemus' heart. Thank God I'm not like those sinners. Because Jesus listens to the religious, because he knows the motivation, the reason behind all the good works Nicodemus has done, including this profession of who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't respond in a way that Nicodemus expects at all. Instead of saying, you're right, I am from God, and and those signs are supposed to prove that, he cuts right to the heart, and he says this in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, If you find yourself confused by that, born again, what in the world does that mean? Well, you're in good company because Nicodemus was too. His response is this. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, that's a little vivid, isn't it? Birth is, I mean, this process just, I think the best way to understand what Nicodemus is saying is actually just to go to this video of a live birth um, that I pulled up for us today. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Um, I think what Nicodemus is saying here is not, are you saying literally I need to be reborn through my mother's womb, but are you saying I need to start over? So Jesus answers him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So if the first response wasn't unhelpful enough, Jesus gives this response, which Nicodemus basically says, what? I like to think of his face just like this painting over here, um, the title of which is, what? I kind of think that's how he responds as Jesus gives this. Wait, you said something about birth and now there's wind. I'm not tracking with this. Well, here's what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus, you're looking for an answer to the wrong question. You're born into sin, into into flesh, right? That which is born of flesh is flesh. You're born into sin and you've built on that foundation your whole life. It's not about building those things up. You can't please God in that life. You have to be reborn. In other words, we don't need to get better. We need to start over. 
We don't need to get better. We don't need to keep building upon this life born into sin. We need to, we need to start over because there's a screw left in the box. We are born into sin. We are wrong from the start. Which is really awesome news for somebody who's very aware of their sin. Somebody who knows that they've done wrong against God. Someone who has done all sorts of things to hurt and offend God and hurt and offend other people or themselves. The idea that they can be reborn, that they can restart, that they can start over is the best news they can hear. But for the person who's religious, for the person whose life on the outside looks almost exactly like the life God wants us to have, that he's shown to us throughout the pages of Scripture, the idea that that person needs to start over is just disheartening. It's devastating. But that's exactly what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, that he needs to lay down all the good things he's done for all the wrong reasons for the sake of being reborn. Everything he's built needs to come apart. Imagine that. The need to repent of good works. Is that really what Jesus is saying? Well, yes, because we don't need to get better. We need to start over. But religion blinds us to our need for this. So when Jesus lays this all out for Nicodemus, explains it to him in ways he should be able to understand, Nicodemus is still so blinded by his own pedigree that he doesn't understand. And he says, how can these things be? Listen to how Jesus responds. Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, have you spent your whole life studying the Bible? Have you spent your whole life immersed in the very thing that ought to point you to me? Have you spent your whole life praying, teaching God's word, giving to God's mission, and you still don't understand You know, I really identify with this, with Nicodemus. I don't know about you, I grew up in the church and uh, grew up doing all the right things, serving in, in church and reading the Bible and, and doing family worship and all this stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't until deep into that journey that I realized what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here. And it is this. And this is going to be kind of hard, but I'm going to say it to you because I'm, I'm not pointing my finger at you, right? This is, this is us together underneath the text, submitted to what Jesus is saying. The deep and terrible danger of religion is that you can spend your whole life doing all the things you ought to be doing. Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, religiously, and still be lost before God. And what's so difficult about it is that all the right things that we do, and maybe even people are looking up to us for how vibrant our faith is and how disciplined we are before God, but it blinds us to our need for a Savior. So how can we tell if we're blind? How can we tell if we're caught up in our own pedigree and our own good works? Well, let me, let me offer this one diagnostic question. This is a long process with a lot of prayer and need for for the Holy Spirit to work in us. But let me offer this question. If somebody were to come in today and ask you specifically, are you a Christian? 
are you a Christian? What would your response be? Would you say, yes, I'm trying harder. I'm working harder to do all the right things. Well, that's a religious answer. If your answer is, yes, I know all the right things about Jesus and what the Bible says. Or maybe it's, yes, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with folks that do. That was the one I got growing up a lot. That's a religious answer. The sum is, if earning God's favor, or if having God's favor, or having God's love has anything to do with you earning it or deserving it, or avoiding the things that will take it away, you need to be reborn. You need to be reborn. So how can someone be reborn? If you have come to this point and discover that you're blinded by your own religion, by all the things that you've done to try to earn God's love, how can, how can we be reborn? Well, the answer to the blindness that religion brings us is sight. Specifically, it's looking to the right place. Jesus listens to the religious. He knows who he's talking to. He knows this man has got a wealth of Bible knowledge. So to illustrate what he's trying to say, he tells a story from the Bible. He tells a story from the Old Testament. Or references it, rather. And because I don't have the Old Testament memorized, I don't think most of us here do, I'm going to summarize the story real quick just so we know what Jesus is talking about. You can find it in Numbers chapter 21. If you want to go home and look it up, it's in Numbers chapter 21. But basically, here's the story. God has miraculously saved the Israelites out of their 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt. He's miraculously defeated the strongest army in the world as they pursued Israel through the wilderness. Miraculously carried them through the Red Sea. He provides for them bread. Every single morning out of nowhere, this bread appears for them to eat, to sustain them on their journey. And and he's taking them to the promised land. And after all of this, the Israelites are not content with what God has done. So much so that they say to Moses and to God, it would be better if you would have left us in slavery in Egypt, where at least we have good food to eat. It's kind of like as you're raising kids, as your kids are growing up, like these are the kids, you changed their diapers, right? You worked so hard to provide a roof to go over their heads, food to go in their mouths, clothes to go on their bodies. You provide them an education. You provide them even things on top of that, like toys or vacations or things like this. And to have them sit down and say, um, I wanted mac and cheese tonight. You think, Lord, give me patience. Don't think about all the times you changed their diapers, right? Don't think of all the times you've done so much to provide this life for them. And Israel is responding just like that to the Lord. So here's what God does. To show them that they've sinned, he sends a plague among them. And it's, a, it's snakes. He sends snakes among the camp. And that would work on me. I'm just saying, I hate snakes. And all these snakes come slithering through the, the camp. They're actually poisonous. They start biting the Israelites, and they start to get sick. They start to die as this poison courses through their veins. And in this moment of judgment, they call out to, to Moses and say, we know we've sinned. Pray to God on our behalf that this will stop. We know what we did was wrong. We sinned. We confess that. So Moses does that. He goes to God. He prays to God and says, the people know they've sinned. They're looking for your forgiveness. And this is what God tells him to do. He says, craft a serpent out of bronze. Stick it on a pole. Stand the pole up in the middle of the camp. And anyone who looks at that snake, if he or she has been bitten, they won't die. They'll be healed. So Moses 
crafts this serpent. He sticks it on a pole, puts it up in the middle of the camp, and people begin to look on the serpent, and they're healed. The poison that courses through them no longer has any effect. Which would be a totally weird way to handle this, right? I mean, he's God. He can just say, poison, stop being poisonous. And it's done, right? And he's healed everybody. But God is looking forward to the day when he will be raised up in the wilderness. And people with a condition just like Nicodemus's, born into sin, will look upon him to be healed. With this story as, as kind of common knowledge between Jesus and Nicodemus, he finishes their conversation in verse 14 by saying this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. If you're here this morning and you realize that you have been blinded by all the good things you've done for all the wrong reasons, just like I have been, if it keeps you from seeing your true need for a Savior, the response is this. Look to Jesus, who is lifted up on the cross, and believe. Believe that he is enough, that he has earned the things you can't for the forgiveness of your sins, all the sins you've committed. He has earned your forgiveness. The record of debt you have before God can be totally obliterated, made as if it never existed. And all the good things that you try to do to earn God's favor, Jesus has done them already. And the difference is he has actually done it. He's actually earned God's favor, and he offers that to you, to me, to us. If we will look to him and believe that he has done it, to trust that he has done it. This might look a couple different ways. Maybe for you, you're motivated to do the right thing. The wrong reasons you have for the right thing is because it makes you feel superior to all the other people who don't. Maybe you're just like the Pharisee who stands up in the temple and says, thank God I'm not like that sinner. Or if you're like me, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee who said, thank God he's not like that sinner. Maybe you look back upon your life and you say, I've done so much given so much, helped, loved, served so many people. I've taken care of my family. I've tried to do the right thing. Those are all good things. I really hope my life can be described that way. But don't let that be what gives you confidence before God. Don't have confidence in things you've done. Have confidence in something that's so much better, which is what Jesus has done for you. Look to Jesus lifted up on the cross and believe. Or maybe for you, maybe you're motivated to do all the right things so that God won't be disappointed in you or mad at you. Maybe you're afraid that God will regret saving you or that he'll be stuck with you. So you try to do all the right things just to stay into God's good, good graces. Maybe you look upon your life and say, I hope I was good enough. I hope I didn't accidentally do something to make God mad. I didn't know. You find yourself constantly confessing every little thing that could possibly be wrong just in case you made God mad and you didn't know it. If that's you this morning, let me encourage you. Don't look for rest where you'll never find it. 
Don't look for rest and acceptance and security in the things you've done or kept yourself from doing. Look for rest, acceptance, and security in what Jesus has done for you. Look to Jesus, lifted up on the cross, and believe. Here's a real practical application for this message. Take some time this week and to really think through this and pray through this to write out your story. I encourage you, not just any story, obviously, but your story with Jesus. Sit down and think through. Recount what Jesus has done for you. See where the moment in your life is or the process in your life is that has brought you to rebirth. And then share it with someone. Maybe it's in your community group during your time in community group, or maybe it's with someone in your community group, but at a different time during the week. Share your story. Hear how the Lord is working and moving in each other's lives to bring about rebirth. Well, we wanted to take an opportunity this morning to do just that, to hear a story of a dear brothers of, our, of ours here at Christ Community who was born into religion and has since been reborn into a relationship with Christ. So if you would, please help me welcome Steve Lewis up to the front. Come on up, Steve. Thank you, Josh. There you go. That's for you. Well, Steve, um, I just want to ask you a couple of questions, and we, we just are excited to hear your story um, and hear what God has done for you. So let me ask you the first question. How were you first exposed to religion? Uh, well, I was, uh, I was born Catholic. I was baptized immediately after birth, as, as uh, Catholics do, uh, before you have any say in the matter. And, um, uh, you know, Catholics baptize to, to wash away original sin. You're, you're born still with the, with the sin of Adam and Eve, um, which I always thought was kind of weird. But, um, uh, and so that's, that's the purpose. So that's just, you know, the, the beginning of... Um, the, the guilt that I felt that throughout uh, my education, uh, I was educated as a Catholic, uh, grades 1 through 16, St. Pius X High School, Rutgers College. Um, and uh, you just always feel guilty that, that no matter what you do, it's not enough. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's um, was crazy. So that's why, I, so about 25 years ago, I quit going, to, quit, fell, fell away from the Catholic Church and uh, wasn't going anywhere. And uh, I was married at the time, and, and we, you know, went to a couple of churches, but never found one really. And so basically, didn't go anywhere, uh, or attended church regularly, or even occasionally attended rarely for 25 years or so. Um, and that's um, uh, and that's basically the history in a nutshell. Yeah, how, about how religion drove you away, even from the church. It definitely did. So um, at one point in your life, you came to really see your need for a Savior. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, it was um, uh, January 21st this year um, is when um, I hit rock bottom. I, I, I'd been always been a uh, social moderate drinker for years and years and years uh, since I was a teenager. Uh, but um, it was... Uh, you know, if you if you chart the drinking of any alcoholic, it's really an exponential curve where you just start drinking a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more, lit, boom, and then it takes off. And that's what happened about, oh, I don't know, eight or ten years ago. And uh, I just, you know, my drinking just started uh, going out of control. I was a functional alcoholic, always uh, had a job, didn't didn't drink in the uh, during the day, but at five o'clock, look out. And uh, I'd always... Uh, uh, you know, I was I was gotten to the point where I was drinking every day, drinking myself to to pass out um, status every day, 
um, drinking a lot, lying, sneaking around, always finding, you know, always hiding, uh, you know, my, my drinking. And it ended up costing me my marriage and my relationship with my son. He hasn't spoken to me for three years. Um, and, uh, and it was just totally out of control. My self-esteem was less than zero. I despised myself. Um, and it was just, it was just a horrible, horrible thing. And then on uh, January 21st, I was in, in Tucson, Arizona on business. And I uh, went out to a brew pub one night and then another bar after that. And uh, going back to the hotel in my rental car, I hit a light pole and uh, was arrested and charged with uh, felony criminal damage for what I did to the light pole in the, in the rental car and misdemeanor DUI, spent the night in jail. Um, and that's when I realized, that night is when I realized, that's it, I'm done. I can't drink anymore, I'm done. And I prayed harder than I've ever prayed in my entire life that God please grant me the strength, give me the determination to quit drinking and to stay sober. Um, I knew I needed his help and so, I, uh, and so that day, that after the next day, I was released from uh, from jail and went back to the hotel and got a good night's sleep and then came back home the next day uh, and went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that night. And uh, and and when I was praying uh, in jail, I just um, it was like God told me, "Okay, Steve, you got to find a church, man. You got to find a church, and you've got to go to AA." And I thought, you know, that was that was good. And so then I went to I went to AA, like I said, that. That, uh, that first night. And then you ended up at Christ Community. Yes, I did. How'd you find your way here? Well, AA is, is not a religious um, brotherhood, but it is very spiritual. And I knew I wanted to find a church, but when I started to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings every day, sometimes twice a day, um, I knew I, I was just desperate to find a church. Um, and I knew I had to find a, a, an organized religion to back up the spirituality of AA. And... Uh, and I thought where I could go, and I, um, right after my divorce, I, I dated this woman um, who went to, who was a member for years at the um, Christ Community Church in Leewood, and, uh, and I remember I liked it, uh, but then we broke up, one more person I hurt, um, and uh, uh, I didn't go anywhere at all, and, but I remembered when I was desperate for a church, I remember the Christ Community, and, and they had one downtown, so I came here and went and liked it again. Like the size of it, as was a common theme among the per- people that became members t- today. They like the size of it, and um, uh, I'd like the everything about it. The message, the music, the people were very friendly. Came back the next week, and some people actually remembered my name, which blew me away. Um, and the, by the third week, I thought, okay, this is it. This is the place I want to be. And I kept going and became a member. Um, and uh, I just uh, have really just just grown to love this church. And was baptized then um, last month. Which we got to see the video of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Which was great. Um, and so how has it been since your, we'll call it a come to Jesus moment in, the, in January? Uh, just just um, incredible. I, I'm a whole lot more, a whole lot happier than I was before. My friends and my family uh, realize it, uh, can see it in me. That I'm uh, happier. I'm, uh, I'm a better worker. I'm just... Uh, just a, a better person. I, I, li- I like myself. I um, am proud of myself. I've been going to AA now for a little over eight months and haven't drank. And, um, uh, and I uh, plan to continue that. And, uh, and it's all because of AA and this church that, uh, that I'm still uh, clean and sober. 
Steve, thanks for t- uh, sharing your story with us and just being vulnerable. And I love to, to hear how God has uh, rescued you both out of religion and out of alcoholism and has brought you to doing life um, through AA, through this church. Um, and you were able to profess that in baptism um, and in your membership here. It's just such a cool story. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, uh, thank you. And, and if, for anyone considering baptism, I would highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's great. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> it really is. You really do feel like, I mean, coming out of the pool that day, I felt like Jesus was saying to me, okay, you know, you're okay. You're not perfect. You're broken. But, you know, I, I, you're, you're okay. I got your back and your front. Um, uh, <laughs> but but yeah, it, it, really, it really was an amazing experience that day that I'll never forget. Well, thank you, Steve. Will you help me thank Steve for coming up and sharing his story today? Well, some of you may be finding yourself this morning identifying with Nicodemus just a little bit more than you had planned. Some of you might be uh, people who have gone to church for a long time, maybe even served in church for a long time. But you realize that your own pedigree, your own good works done for the wrong reasons have blinded you for, to your true need, which is for a Savior. If that describes you, as we heard from that story just now, there is hope. There is hope, despite how dangerous an obstacle this is to your faith. Because this isn't the last time we hear from Nicodemus, from John. You don't have to turn there, but I'd love for you to hear the end of the story Jesus has continued going on doing miracles and teaching, gaining enemies, and eventually he goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested, he's beaten, he's nailed up to a cross, and he dies. And after Jesus has died, and after all of his 12 disciples have scattered, John tells us that there are two men who stayed. And so listen to how Nicodemus' story ends. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. He was there. He was there when Jesus was raised up on the cross. And I got to think, I got to think in that moment when he saw Jesus raised up, that it all clicked for him. That everything he tried to do to earn God's favor was not enough. But that everything that Christ had just done to earn him God's favor was. And that he laid down all of his good works all of his pedigree, everything that he had done for the wrong reasons at the foot of the cross to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus alone for his salvation and his good standing for God. And ironically, the new life that he lives looks exactly like the one that that he lived before. He was reborn into new life before Jesus. And he was so excited about it, so thankful about it, that he had to tell God, so he prayed. And he was so captured by the love that God had for him, the plan that God had for him, that he wanted to learn more about it, so he read his Bible. 
And he wanted to be around people who had experienced this similar rebirth, who had the joy that Jesus had brought them because of the freedom from their sins. So he went to church. So he told as many people about it as he could. His changed motives, not his actions, but his changed motives reveal his new belief, his trust, that what Jesus has done is enough. But it all starts with being reborn. So whatever it is that makes you think, that makes us think we've earned, maintained, or otherwise played any role in getting God's love or good favor, let us lay it down at the foot of the cross. Let us look to Jesus, lift it up on the cross, and believe. You know, every week um, we partake in a meal together that reminds us what Jesus has done to secure God's love for us to secure the forgiveness of our sin, to secure our good standing before God. Uh, as, we take, as we take the bread, the broken bread, we remember the body of Christ that was broken, that took the place of ours. And as we drink of the juice, we remember the blood of Christ that was poured out to wash us clean from our sins. We're going to do something a little bit different today during our communion time. Um, two of our members here downtown are going to position themselves over by the piano table. It'll be Josh and Katie. So now you know their names. Um, they'll be over by the piano um, table. If, if you're struck in a unique way by this message and realize that you've been blind, blinded by your religion, they would love for you to come over and talk to them or pray with them to be a resource in any way for you. I encourage you uh, to take advantage of that. But as we gather together to observe communion, I want to tell you a little bit about how that works here at Christ Communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to, to partake in communion here. We do ask that you have been reborn, that you have looked upon Jesus as your only hope in salvation. And if that describes you, what you'll do is you'll come down the center aisle, you'll go around the front to the outside behind these two dividers, you'll um, gather in groups of about four to six, you'll take a piece of our gluten-free bread, dip it in the juice, and then partake together, remembering what Christ has done for you. If you have children with you uh, who have yet to be reborn, who have yet to trust in Christ alone as their hope for salvation, um, we encourage you for their own good to, um, to have them not partake in this, but we would love, our servers would love to offer a blessing over them in the same way that Jesus did. So whether this is a time for you to take communion or this is a time for you to seek out prayer from the members of this church, I'd encourage you to sit in this message, to rest in the peace of what Christ has finished for you. Before we gather for communion, let us remember. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, whenever you're ready, come.